Hello, and welcome back to the Parabiblica for the Perplexed. In this smaller episode, I will cover the wisdom of Solomon. Both in the Tanakh and in extra-biblical sources, Shlomo is attested to as an extremely wise king, and in Malachim, kings, it claims that Shlomo had written a total of 3,000 proverbs, far more than are in the canonical Mishle, and presumably more than ever existed. And even the Parabiblica does not contain this many Psalmonic Psalms, but there is a very well-known book of Psalmonic wisdom. The apocryphal Wisdom of Solomon is included in the Septuagint and is still considered part of the Deuterocanon by both Catholic and Orthodox Christians. This book was probably written in Greek by a member or members of the large Jewish community in Alexandria, Egypt. This community is responsible for much of the surviving Jewish writings from the Second Temple period. Scholars disagree on when exactly this book was written, but there is a general consensus that it was written around the latter half of the first century BCE. It does not explicitly attribute itself to Solomon, but it appears as the wisdom of Solomon in all ancient sources and heavily implies that King Shlomo is its author. Its central themes are very relatively similar to that of Mishle, the value of wisdom, judgment of the wicked, and praise of God. The book is relatively long, and many different topics are covered in its many chapters, so I'll be covering each chapter individually. The first chapter addresses rulers of the earth directly. It instructs them to seek wisdom, God, and righteousness, and to avoid perverse thoughts, a possible allusion to the account of Shlomo going astray after his many wives. It provides as its reasoning that God hears all slander and grumbling spoken using relatively physical descriptors of God, which may suggest that the author used an older wisdom source. It then instructs them to avoid bringing death to the world, which some have suggested refers to a persecution in Alexandria that must have occurred at the time of the book's composition. The second chapter presents the reasoning of the wicked that has led them to sin. It is predicated on the temporal nature of humanity and inevitability of death, leading to the prioritization of the material, which is an obvious defiance of the values of the Jewish community in Alexandria. It goes on to say that the wicked oppress the righteous to test the legitimacy of the value of God. It interestingly refers to the righteous as children of God, a title famously used in a far more literal sense in the books of the New Testament. It then presents a refutation to the wicked by claiming that the soul is eternal and that there is a reward after death. I personally find it interesting how similar this is to the contemporaneous debate between theism and atheism. The third chapter goes on to describe this reward, saying that there are not truly dead but at peace in the hand of God. It compares the righteous to a sacrifice, equating the trials and hardships of life to the fire that precedes ascending to be with God. This comparison once again reminds me of the New Testament, as a very similar comparison is the central theme of the Gospel of John. These parallels suggest that the book was in wide circulation during the first two centuries of the Common Era. It then states that there will also be fitting punishment for the wicked. The reward and punishment system described immediately shows the large amount of Hellenistic influence on the book. It then states that childlessness for the righteous is better than sinful issue, perhaps drawing from the account of Rehavam, Rehoboam, Shlomo's son and successor who split the kingdom in two. The fourth chapter once again praises the righteous over the wicked, 
making the claim that acts of the righteous will be recorded, remembered, and emulated for a long time to come, while the acts of the wicked will be soon forgotten after their death. It then offers an explanation to the righteous dying early, stating that they had already accomplished their life's mission in the short time, and God had taken them before they would know wickedness. This explanation once again suggests that wisdom was written during a time of danger for the Jews of Alexandria. It then repeats that judgment will come for the wicked. The fifth chapter begins with a description of the wicked viewing the righteous during judgment. It contains a lengthy speech in which the, in which the wicked reflect on their lives and regret their treatment of the righteous, and lament on the passing of their works. Following is a description of God protecting the righteous, making several metaphors to the tools of a warrior as attributes God uses to protect. The sixth chapter once again addresses kings, and warns them that their actions will be held to a higher standard because of their power. This could possibly suggest the influence from Jerusalem, referring to the Hasmoneans, but this is somewhat of a stretch. It then proceeds to compare wisdom to a woman, a comparison very familiar from Mishlei. It focuses on the theme that she is found easily by those who seek her, perhaps suggesting that the book was written for purposes of proselytization, as much of the Jewish Alexandrian literature was. The seventh chapter begins with the author describing themselves as human like everyone else, despite being a king, once again implying that the author is indeed King Shlomo. It describes how he loved and sought after wisdom as opposed to material wealth or pleasure, but that through his quest for wisdom he obtained these things as well. This is a pretty obvious allusion to the account of Shlomo choosing wisdom over anything else as his request to God. It then contains a prayer asking God for wisdom and praising him as its source, as well as the source of all other natural things. It once again describes and praises wisdom in a matter very similar to Mishlei. Eighth chapter continues this description of wisdom and describes her as an associate of God in a way that seems reminiscent of a later anthropomorphosis of the Shabbat in prayer. The author goes on to describe how he was made a powerful king by seeking wisdom and through his relationship with her. The ninth chapter is an extended prayer for God to grant the author wisdom to rule his people and build the temple, once again implying that Shlomo is the author. It refers to wisdom as a woman with God in heaven, perhaps suggesting that this prayer is from an older and possibly monolatrous source. The tenth chapter presents a history of the world from Adam through the Exodus. It describes wisdom hand in the events described, including Adam's creation, Noah's survival, the Tower of Babel, Lot's safety, Yaakov's fleeing, and Yosef's enslavement, putting emphasis on the theme of wisdom staying with and protecting a single righteous person among a larger group of the wicked. The 11th chapter continues this history, describing how wisdom provided water to Israel in contrast to the plague of blood. The theme of the ten plagues will make up a large majority of the rest of the book. It uses this to transition to a description of wisdom's treatment of Israel as like that of a parent, but harsher treatment of the ungodly. It describes this treatment, now addressing God, as the sending of wild animals and new beasts upon the wicked, a possible out-of-order description of the plague of beasts. It then describes God's mercy, saying that God is merciful and loving to all, somewhat in contradiction with the rest of this chapter. The twelfth chapter describes God's judgment of the Canaanim, justifying it by describing their child sacrificing practices. It then contains a praise of God possibly based on Eov. 
It then once again describes God's judgment of the wicked. The 13th chapter serves as a rebuttal to forms of paganism. It first addresses worship of forces of nature, comparing it to crediting a piece of art for its own beauty instead of the artist. It urges the reader to see how much more powerful and helpful the creator of these forces must be than the forces themselves. It then addresses idol worship, pointing out how idols were created by man and are helpless to themselves. It interestingly puts some emphasis on the poor craftsmanship of idols compared to useful carvings and stresses their lack of utility. The 14th chapter continues on idolatry, pointing out specifically the flaw of praising an idol for a ship's safe journey as opposed to the ship itself. It then provides a number of reasons for the temporary prominence of idolatry. It claims that the practice was created by a grieving father who made an image of his dead child. The practice was then adopted by people and enforced by kings to keep large countries united in worship. It describes how idols grew to be more important than the people and gods that they initially represented, which led to every evil, the description of which somewhat parallels the evils caused by the Watchers, the Irin, and Sefer Hanuch. The 15th chapter contrasts this by praising God, stating that God alone was not created by human artists. It then describes these artists, stating that they know more than anyone how fake the idols are and are therefore sinning more than others. It describes how idol worship leads to oppressing of the righteous, which is even worse. It goes on to describe how they also served animals. The 16th chapter follows up on this, saying that for this reason they were attacked by wild animals, explaining the passage that had appeared before. It talks of God healing disease and bringing people both to and from Hades, a possible precursor to the concept of a temporal Gehenna, or a limited hell, found later in the rabbinic texts. It describes God's power and miracles of the plagues in a way not dissimilar from Tehillim 78. It describes the man, manna, changing to the consumer's preferred taste, a concept familiar from later commentary but not present in the text of the Torah, the Pentateuch. It goes on to describe how food and crop is not what sustains man, but rather God because God causes the conditions for these to grow. The 17th chapter describes illusions experienced by some group of wicked people, assumed to be an alternate description of the plague of darkness. It describes visions of phantoms and spirits from Hades, likely an allusion to the Shadim. It goes on to tell how these people were not directly harmed by their visions, but were so terrified that many of them ended up dying of fear from other things. The 18th chapter continues this description of the plagues, Finishing with a description of Makat Bechorot, it adds that the firstborn were warned in a dream but continued to sin anyway, and so were killed. It then describes the plague that befell Israel in the desert and praises Aaron for bringing it to an end non-violently. The 19th and final chapter of the work is a sort of anthology. It begins with a description of the Egyptians' death at the sea of reeds to follow up its description of the plagues. It then describes the Israelites' safe passage through noting the many miracles that occurred to them, including quail coming out of the water for the Israelites to eat, which is not found in the Torah. It goes back to provide the reason for the Egyptians' punishment, being their enslavement of those who were only generous to them, stressing the warnings that they had received. It then describes the oddity and wonder of the miracles God performed, stating that God changed the nature of animals, switching land and sea animals, and the natures of fire and water. 
The book then concludes that God has always glorified and helped his people, a possible call to conversion. And so concludes this mini-sode of the Parabiblica for the Perplexed. I had intended to do a larger episode, including most of the Salmonic works, but unfortunately those will have to be in a future episode. Thank you so much for listening. I would really appreciate it if you could give this program a positive rating and review. And please join us next time for Parabiblica for the Perplexed, The Minor Apocalypses.